This is Dan Wilson Uncancelled. Let's go. As I have been covering for a number of weeks on this show, women's sport is under attack in Britain. And if we're not careful, its very existence could soon be threatened. Hard-left organisations like Stonewall, the woke mob, uh, the politically correct and the Labour Party have decided trans rights trumps the rights of those born biologically female. And as a number of high-profile sports people, both trans women and women, have told me on this show, even years of hormone treatment doesn't reverse male puberty, putting women's sport on a slippery slope to extinction. This isn't a, a sort of a cultural thing. This is about just straightforward fairness and biology. And feelings don't do sport. You know, our bodies do sport. The reason sport is separated by sex is because males have massive physical advantages compared to females. So if women's sport did not exist, female athletes who are household names like myself, Paula Radcliffe, Sharon Davis, we would be nobodies. Nobody would have ever heard of us. So this is why women's sport exists. We need to honor sport and recognize sex above gender in order to keep fairness in sport, uh, unless we would like to not include women anymore. We cannot have biological boys competing against women in women's sports. We need a fair playing field. And right now, if we allow this, it's not a fair playing field. As a major supporter of women's sports, I have been clear on my view that there is no grey area on this. I'm all for an equal society. Trans competitors like Leah Thomas, uh, like Laurel Hubbard and like Emily Bridges should be welcomed into specific trans events or compete against other biological males. But they simply cannot be allowed to compete against women. Sporting bodies must limit competitors to the biological sex in which they were born. And tonight, I can reveal sanity is prevailing after a major intervention from the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Critically on this issue, Sport. So Nadine Dorries, in this exclusive interview with GB News, reveals her plans. Watch. How are you going to protect biological women in sport? We're speaking to various sporting bodies about this. I am absolutely the opinion that it is impossible for a trans woman to compete in women's sports. You can choose your gender mm. and we will support you yes. and help you to do that. We will give you all the love and compassion and support you need to get to that place. But you can't change your biology. You can't change that you were born male or you were born female. It is what it is. And I'm afraid even with you know, uh, those athletes who try to get their testosterone levels below, it, it still isn't the case that if somebody's been through puberty and they've developed through puberty, that, that it will make the significant difference. So I just don't believe that any trans... And we, we've seen it happen recently with cycling, you know? The, the athletes have stood up, women athletes have stood and up sanity prevailed there. Yeah. But... If Stonewall had their way, there would be a very different approach. So would it be possible that there might have to be a law at some point to protect female so sport, I would, sport? I would, you know, I hate making laws. I'd really prefer it if, and I've got enough laws being made in this department. Yes. We're passing five bills, I think, and there haven't been five yeah. bills in the last 20 years. I would prefer the sporting bodies to come together. And actually, I've asked mm. for a roundtable with them to discuss Excellent. this. So that they can come together with a compact and a, and a joint agreement and reach a position which protects women athletes 
and but also you know shows compassion to those trans athletes and helps them to achieve the goals that they want to maybe that's having you know trans categories i don't know what the answer is but i do know that the bottom line is you can't have trans women competing in women's sport i completely agree let's talk about channel four because a number of conservative culture secretaries have avoided this it has been party policy for a long time but they knew announcing the decision to privatise was going to see the London liberal left-wing mob come for them. You've made the decision to do it, and sure enough, they have come for you in, in quite an extraordinary manner, actually. I mean, Alistair Campbell said the Channel 4 move is right out of the Orban playbook in time to make it blatant. Part of their purpose is to wind up liberals. Uh, Claudia Webb, the disgraced former Labour MP, said uh, this is the seedbed of fascism. <laughs> Angela Rayner said this is cultural vandalism from a government that's run out of ideas, run out of road and has no interest in levelling up. Why are they so upset about well, Channel 4 being privatised? can I just say all of those three statements are just completely untrue and, and border on bizarre. And... I, th I think we've moved from a, you know, I've been an MP for quite a long time. And when you said something, it would be evidence-backed and it would be uh, substantially truthful. It seems today as though the attacks are just, just words picked at random to make an attack. None of what any of those three individuals have said. But, you know, Alistair Campbell has a long history of attacking me personally. He's one of those men, I'm afraid, who can't accept women from my background doing well. He's, you know, quite abusively attacked me for many years. He hates anybody who is pro-Brexit. And so I'm afraid for me, it kind of runs off my back like water would from a duck's. It's a bit like when I got my job, you know, when I was promoted to this role, to do to take those difficult decisions. I mean, the Prime Minister knew what he was doing when he put me in here. He knows I'm not somebody to, you know, to, to do the hard yards. So whether it's online safety or the BBC or Channel 4, he knew what he was doing. And I knew what I was doing when we and when I decided that we were going to move mm -hmm. ahead with a bill that's been this department also for six years, the online safety bill, that we were going to move ahead with another policy that's been hanging around for years, which is sell Channel 4, because you know, there are many reasons why that mm. should happen now. And and on the BBC, and of course, I've become almost a hate figure of the left for doing it. Well, they want to denigrate you as Personally, stupid in some yeah. way, don't they? As if you don't understand yeah. the policy brief. That seems yeah. to be their playbook. I've got one mission, and that's not really to listen to all those noises off. It's to deliver I was given a job to do by the Prime Minister, and that job involved delivering on some very difficult policies, and that's what I'm going to do. When it comes to Channel 4, it's quite clear to me why these people want to keep it in government hands, because it is an organisation that in every nook and cranny is to the left, including the news service, by mm -hmm. the way. I mean, for years and years and years, they had a presenter who was famous for saying F the Tories. So I think we have to put that on the table that this is a left-wing organisation and that's absolutely fine if they can survive in the private sector just like at GB News we're obviously coming at the news in a different manner uh, from a different perspective and we'll see if the market wants it or not. Mm -hmm. Do you concede that Channel 4 is a left-wing organisation? 
So look, I'm not going to get tied up in the ideology of Channel 4 uh, whilst making my decisions because there are some very good reasons why Channel 4 needs to be sold. Um, but what I will say, it doesn't help itself sometimes, you know, having news presenters who do shout those words and, and some of the things. It just hasn't helped itself. And I think there are people who've tried to help Channel 4 over the years, but it's just never wanted to. Dorothy Byrne compared Boris Johnson to Putin. She was their most senior news executive know, for years. I know, Well, that's what I mean. They just haven't helped themselves. The broadcasting landscape is changing at warp speed. It's getting a very tough, but I know, good luck to GB News, by the way. I mean, I think it's Thank amazing you. what you've <laughs> done and it's very brave what you've done. And so I wish you nothing but the best of luck. People say, oh, she doesn't know how Channel 4 is funded. I know very well how Channel 4 is funded. And I know that if Channel 4 gets into a difficult position, that it comes to the government because when it needs money borrowing, it can only raise its investments from the government or its borrowing from the government. And that if Channel 4 got into a difficult position, it would be as it comes to. And the decision is quite clear cut and it's quite a business case. It's time to, and you know, that for me is more of a Thatcherite decision than- Because than, this is another misnomer from the left, isn't it? it Folk like Kirsty Allsop saying, Thatcher would be rolling in her grave. No. She had changed her mind on Channel 4, yeah. hadn't and, she? Yeah, and you know, Charles Moore, who's the absolute expert on who's been through her memoirs and and wrote the Downey Street years, is quite, I've spoken to him and he's quite clear about the fact that she realised, I mean, she what she did was she established Channel 4 to act as this seedbed to, to encourage and to grow new talent in the UK. Why would we be sitting on an asset like Channel 4 when we could sell mm. Channel 4 and use that money to put back into the broadcasting sector, to train people to work, to, to, to make more independent content and to keep producing and to keep growing that sector. And I feel very strongly that if Margaret Thatcher were here now, she'd be going absolutely the right thing to do. The new Channel 4 news anchor, uh, Krishnan Guru Murthy, has said that the government could ring fence Channel 4 news. Is that something that you would consider? So I'm not going to get into any discussions about what I would ask why, but I'm going to you know, get into discussions about what we're doing. Channel 4 will be, um, we'll be going through a process of sale and it's not for me to chop it up into bits and offer it chopped up. It's Channel 4 will be for sale. But, you know, we're looking at all sorts of options. I'm not going to say we discount that, but I would ask the question, why would we do that and what would be the benefit of that? Who would benefit from that? It's wrong to force people to keep paying for the BBC licence fee just to watch TV, right? You know, I, I, I did say to the Prime Minister when I came into my job, I made sure that he was aware of what my views were on the BBC um, and, and he knew what my views were because, frankly, a funding model which was established in 1946 where, as you say, people have to pay uh, and they may not even watch the BBC just because they own a television set. You know, for, for so many reasons... It's an outdated model. Do you understand as a uh, culture secretary that a lot of folk have lost faith with the BBC in recent years because of the fact that before the Brexit referendum, they missed this great cultural change happening in the country. It feels like the BBC in recent years, its news service has become out of touch yeah. with ordinary well, I, Brits. And you know, the BBC accept this themselves. If they had been totally impartial and if they had provided balanced news, lacking in mm. opinion to the public, 
They wouldn't have had a Sirota review. They wouldn't have had a Dyson review. They wouldn't have had to publish a 10-point plan. They wouldn't have had to publish how that 10-point plan is going to be implemented and look at ways they can measure impartiality within the organisation. They've had to do all of that because they know the criticism is very real. And in fact, Tim Davy, the Director General, says himself, we have a problem with impartiality. The Online Safety Bill, it's obviously a real passion project of yours. It's divided opinion because a lot of free speech fundamentalists, and I would put myself in that category, worried about the consequences of what a lot of very well-intentioned parts of the policy could mean in terms of shutting down that open debate online. The Online Safety Bill provides greater protections for freedom of speech than there are right now. And I'll give you an example to illustrate that. So um, freedom of speech at the moment is decided by kind of the 2003 Miscommunications Act. Now, I don't know if you remember, but uh, years ago, a few years ago, somebody threatened that they were gonna blow up Robin Hood Airport. That person was arrested, they were convicted, and they were charged. Once this bill passes, that will not happen because that was obviously a joke. That was not something that was that was tweeted with intent to cause harm. What we do in the bill is we update the 2003 and the 88 Act to actually bring them in line with the reality of today and to strengthen freedom of speech. So, and, and I'm not quite sure, I, I understand that people read an original version of the draft bill, but I've changed that bill considerably since I got here. Right now, um, online platforms, they will take down talk radio for the day. Mm. They will slap I was fake working news. there at the time. Oh, were you? <laughs> they will slap fake news over a Mail on Sunday article. Yeah. They will take Carl Hennigan. They took down his, his Twitter account. They won't be able to do that mm. when this bill comes online. It is absolutely uh, shocking that a platform like Twitter bans Donald Trump but keeps the Taliban on board and President Putin, by the way. And so that's inconsistency. So what we're asking these platforms to do, abide by your terms and conditions, be open and transparent, let us see how your algorithms work, and put right what you're doing wrong, but be consistent and, and protect freedom of speech. So we're doing that, that's what we're doing. And I want to talk... And I can see that's thrown you. So please, I'm going to give you a copy no, of the bill no, no, to go no, away and do, read. Do, do, you know what? do you know what? It actually hasn't thrown me. I'm very torn on this issue personally. I mean... But you um, need to read the bill to see yeah. that it actually enhances no, and I, freedom I, I, of speech I ha now. I have seen there have been changes and I appreciate there are huge issues in terms of the tech giants at the moment. Personally, I'm very torn on this because I'm a free speech fundamentalist at the same well, time... Well, then you should really support the bill then. Yeah, at the same time, recently... Uh, a relatively high profile figure actually went to jail for illegal death threats that he had made against me in a long running online campaign. So he was breaking the law, right? Mm. And the social media companies would not take down his posts, even once well, they will the have police had charged him and this man had been sent to jail. So as long as free speech is protected, mm. I have no issue with the social media companies having to follow the law. So, Dan, what my mum was doing was illegal. And so there are a number of sections of this bill. What's illegal offline has to be illegal yeah, online too. exactly. And freedom of speech, protecting democratic debate, democratic content, journalistic content, that mm. is all important too. I think she's doing a great job. The Culture Secretary, Nadine Dorries. Brendan O'Neill is tonight's Outsider. 
And breaking tonight, Wimbledon officials have been threatened with legal action by the Belarusian Tennis Federation after banning its players and those hailing from Russia from this year's competition. The ruling by London's All England Club means the likes of Russia's uh, Dalnil Medvedev, the world's number two, tipped to win the tournament, and Andrei Rublev, who bravely spoke out against Putin at the start of the invasion. There he's doing that uh, with this stunt at the Dubai Tennis Championships. Well, they'll both be forced to stay away. In addition to the Federation alleging the All England Club has acted illegally, the ban has been met with fury by players. Serbian-born world number one Novak Djokovic himself dramatically ousted from the Australian Open earlier this year over his vax status called the decision crazy. Cannot support the decision of Wimbledon. I think it's crazy. Players, tennis players, sports people have got nothing to do with that. When politics interferes with sport, the result is not good. Meanwhile, one of the all-time greats, Martina Navratilova, who fled communism in Czechoslovakia aged 18, admitted she was devastated for players in this emotional interview. You're crying now, so, well, yeah, it's tough. You're close to crying right now, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think this is just going further than, than, than needed to be um, going, quite frankly. Um, of course, your wife is, is Russian as well, which must make it particularly painful. Well, incredibly powerful stuff. Brendan O'Neill, is this fair? Absolutely not fair at all. And I think it's a disgrace, actually. And Wimbledon should be ashamed of itself for making this decision. I think what it means is that Wimbledon has now become a discriminate competition. It is now a competition that bans people if they were born in the wrong country, if they were born in Russia or born in Belarus. And that is a really disgraceful position for Wimbledon to take. Wimbledon used to pride itself on being the fairest, most polite, open-minded competition in the world. And now it's done this thing which I think is actually driven by an element of bigotry. I think it's disgraceful to punish individual sports stars for the crimes of their governments. The thing for me, Brennan, is where does this end? I mean, mm. are we going to start forcing the BBC to ban Russian professional dancers from Strictly Come Dancing, even though they've lived in Britain for years and years and years? It's a slippery slope, isn't it, this? Oh, it's a very, very slippery slope. And the, the first logical conclusion to this is precisely, as you say, that you have to get rid of all Russian performers and artists and sports people because they are supposedly uh, polluted by the views of uh, Vladimir Putin, the person who leads their country. And also, what about Chinese sports stars? You know, the Chinese government does terrible things. What about Turkish people? Uh, you know, the Turkish uh, government does terrible things to the Kurdish people. Why don't we punish Turkish sports stars, or for that matter, American sports stars and English sports stars. You know, our governments have invaded countries in a way that lots of us think was wrong and destructive. Should they be banned from sporting competitions too? So I think the, the, the first impulse is that it's going to demonize all Russian people and make them seem suspect. But also it raises questions about why a double standard is being applied to Russia and Belarus when there are many countries around the world doing terrible and authoritarian things. Well, indeed. And that's one of the reasons, of course, why we like to keep 
sport and politics separate as much as possible, but the two worlds have uh, collided, and collided in recent years, haven't they? Uh, it looks like, uh, Brayden, one of the reasons that uh, Wimbledon was so concerned, Wimbledon organisers were so concerned, was because of the very real possibility that Medvedev could win the competition. And this is, of course, a very similar situation that the Australian Open organisers found themselves in with Novak Djokovic, uh, because they didn't want a non-vaxxed player to win the tournament. But it shouldn't make a difference, should it, who's going to win with these no, decisions. absolutely not. And if, if you are trying to block people from winning because you don't like the country they come from or you don't like the position they take on vaccinations, then you are not being a fair sports person. You are not adjudicating sports in the open way that they ought to be adjudicated. And this is what worries me, the pollution of sport by politics. And that, as you say, that's been happening for a long time now, but it's been it's really reaching a crescendo over the Russian-Ukraine war. Now, I am completely opposed to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I am completely opposed to the Putin regime. But we have to separate ordinary Russian people from the Russian Russian government. We can't hold Russian people responsible for what their government does, because that's a form of prejudice. That's a form of bigotry. And, and the, the real problem I have with this outlook is that it has become quite McCarthyite. So there has been pressure on Russian tennis players over the past few months to come out and denounce Putin, to denounce the war in Ukraine. And I don't think we should be putting pressure on sports stars to make political statements, to uh, make their political views known to the public, to, to basically to show that they are loyal to the Western view that Russia is a bad country. That is a McCarthyite trend where we're forcing people to declare a political allegiance or else they will be expelled from public life. And I think that's authoritarian and that's wrong. Brendan, this decision wouldn't have been made uh, if Russia was a predominantly non-white country, would it? It would be accused of uh, as being racist. It feels like there's a bit of cover here because Russia is a white country. I think there's a strong element where there is that double standard too, where countries are judged differently depending on their racial makeup, their ethnic makeup. And if you look, for example, at Qatar and the World Cup that will be taking place there, there is very little criticism at the moment of the uh, prejudices and the bigotry and the authoritarianism in that country. And lots of the English football players who have been taking the knee against American yeah. racism, essentially, for the past year, it doesn't look like they're going to take the knee for any no. of the people who have been No, they're, they're not taking the knee. And, and by the way, you've also got those virtue signalers in chief like David Beckham and Gary Neville, very happy to turn a blind eye when it comes to guitar. Brendan O'Neill, thank you so much. We'll speak next week, Brendan. With eco-zealots becoming a persistent and disruptive stain on our society, do we really want to inspire another generation of Greta Thunbergs? Well, that could soon be a disturbing reality after Education Secretary Nadine Zahawi today unveiled a new climate change GCSE, which will be ready for students to take in 2025. The very woke qualification is the result of a decade-long campaign by environmentalist ideologues and will teach students 
how to, quote, conserve the planet by focusing on topics such as climate change and biodiversity. More worryingly, though, this will give pupils the option of ditching crucial core subjects in favour of so-called climate change science, meaning kids could leave school without skills actually needed for the real world. Well, Zahawi said in a statement, sustainability and climate change are the biggest challenges facing mankind. None of us can be in any doubt just how critical they've become. The new Natural History GCSE will offer young people a chance to develop a deeper knowledge and understanding of this amazing planet, its environment and how to conserve it. Darren Grimes has been investigating this and Darren, you're not buying into that rhetoric from Nadim Zahawi. You're worried actually. about this. I really am. Yeah, I think it's very much open to capture by left wing activists on this to actually attack everything from capitalism to our state structures. Let's not forget that the biggest mouthpieces of this activist class, Extinction Rebellion, are very much pro abolishing capitalism and our straight state structures. He says, Nadim Zahawi says there in another statement that actually it's there to inspire a new generation of David Attenborough's and Elon Musk's to actually innovate and create the solutions that we need to get to our net immiseration by 2050. But Dan, I actually think this is the government, right, trying to show a further bit of leg to the Green Lobby because it's so terrified of them. It's so sick of the activism on the streets that's blocking our roads and stopping kids getting to school or workers being able to transport vital oil and gas supplies to our, heat our homes and, and power our nation. But actually, I think that at this point, the government are at risk of not earning their environmental stripes because they'll never be accepted by these people. They're actually at this point only showing so much leg to them that there is no trouser left, frankly, and they're at real risk of flashing. And I say, right, I, I want to actually point to Nadeem Zahawi to stats by Bath University, which actually found it and it polled young people in 10 countries, actually. But in this one, it found that young people are finding that their future is really frightening. And that's that's a word that they're using. That's not my word. And I think, why would we actually encourage this trend, Dan? We don't we need kids here to be leaving schooled, as you say, tooled for the future. We don't need kids to leave school convinced by ideologues that their future is going to be cut short by either drowning to death or burning to death because of apocalyptic climate change. I think it's absolutely the wrong approach and that the Conservative Party ultimately, Dan, will regret creating a new generation convinced that they're the problem? No, I know, Darren, I know. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of these kids have bought into propaganda and you can't blame them for that, can you? I remember when I was a teenager and I've spoken about it a lot, I was absolutely left terrified, partly because of the way uh, that a lot of extreme environmental uh, zealotry was drilled into me at school. And I just think it's, it's, it's wrong.
Absolutely. I mean, I remember PSHE classes, which is a really useless waste of a child's time at school. But they wheeled through a television and on it was The Day After Tomorrow, the 2004 apocalyptic climate change movie. And of course, that does terrify you as a child. But then, Dan, I hope this climate change GCSE will tell kids that we in Britain are responsible for a measly less than 1% of global CO2 emissions. Because I think the narrative from Extinction Rebellion and other groups, and from what the government itself actually says, you would assume it was much higher than that, right? You would assume that Britain was a unique evil on the earth, on the natural environment. But I think you look at other things that this government are doing, right? Take Tony Blair's advice this week, remember him? He came forward and said that his government's 50% of young people going to university target was actually too short, too small. We should be sending a whopping 70% of kids to university. So not only are we going to get kids leaving university somewhere to the left of Jeremy Corbyn, but because of taxpayer cash being spent on this new climate change GCSE course, we're going to be getting Greta Thunbergs as well. I mean, what's the Conservative Party think it's doing here? It is creating a new generation of activists that will not be best pleased with a Conservative government. I'll tell you that much for free, Dan. And Darren, you didn't go to university and you think it's the best decision you ever made, right? Absolutely. I think it's a total waste of money for kids to actually be going there. It's a waste of students' time. It's a waste of a workforce, frankly, giving people genuine life chances because they're in the workforce, they're getting that experience and, and being tooled up for what they need to go through life. Because I tell you what, Dan, learning about Extinction Rebellion's aims and objectives at school, I don't think is going to set you up for success in life. Let's look at the backdrop, right? Kids have fallen behind because of what you've documented throughout your shows since its inception. The lockdown strategy, kids have le uh, that's led to mm -hmm. worsening of, of life chances. And instead of focusing on STEM subjects, Dan, like maths, like English, like science, we're instead focusing on wackery and walkery on the curriculum. And <laughs> I don't think a Conservative government should be standing for that. No. Indeed. Darren Grimes, great to chat. Thank you so much. Dan Wilson here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wilson tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.